Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone, welcome back to Talking Tudors, episode 118, and the third instalment of the All Things Tudor Queens and Consorts series. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger, and I'm so glad that you could join me. As always, I'd like to begin by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support this podcast via Podbean Patron, and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. While all the content being shared over July and August is free, please consider supporting the All Things Tudor Queens and Consorts event by becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, or click on the Be a Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. July's prize is an amazing Tudor book bundle, which includes the following titles. Forgotten Queens in Medieval and Early Modern Europe, edited by Dr. Valerie Schutte and Dr. Estelle Peronk, Mary I and the Art of Book Dedications by Dr. Valerie Schutte, and Dr. Schutte's latest book, Princesses Mary and Elizabeth Tudor and the Gift Book Exchange. A huge thank you to Dr. Schutte for sponsoring this fantastic prize. Now, on to today's episode. I'm excited that joining me on the show to talk about Elizabeth of York is Dr. Elizabeth Norton. Dr. Norton is a British historian specialising in the Queens of England and the Tudor period. She has degrees from the Universities of Cambridge and Oxford and a PhD from King's College London. Dr. Norton has written a number of books, including The Lives of Tudor Women, The Temptation of Elizabeth Tudor, and England's Queens, The Biography. She regularly appears as an expert on television. Our conversation's coming straight up after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sayles.
welcome to Talking Tudors, Elizabeth. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me on, Natalie. I'm so excited to have you back on the show. So it would be a good idea just for you just to introduce yourself to our listeners and just tell us a little bit about your background. Hello. Yes. So I am Dr. Elizabeth Norton. I'm a British historian. I specialize in the Tudors and the Queens of England. So I've written quite a few books on those topics. Um, Most recently was The Lives of Tudor Women. I've also written The Temptation of Elizabeth Tudor, which is about Elizabeth I and the Seymour scandal, and also biographies of four of Henry VIII's wives. So um, I love the Tudors, often appear on television. I've been teaching at King's College London. So I do all sorts of things, but all related to the Tudors and the Queens of England. Fantastic. Now, the topic for today's All Things Tudor Queens and Consorts conversation is, in fact, Elizabeth of York. I thought it would be a good place to start if you could just set the scene for us a little bit and and tell us what life was like in England at the time of Elizabeth's birth. So Elizabeth was born in the 1460s, and she is obviously the daughter of Edward IV, the king, and his wife, Elizabeth Woodville. So she's born into the highest rank of society. But England in the late 15th century is very politically unstable. So we're right at the end of the medieval period, although, of course, people don't know that at the time. England is quite a small kingdom. The population is small. It's very, very rural. So even cities like London are much, much smaller than we would think of as a city. You know, London is very much clustered around the city of London, the old walled city, and also Westminster, where Elizabeth was born. It's a small society. Um, The nobility is very small. The royal family is very small. Life is often short. Early deaths are very common. And of course, Elizabeth dies quite young. So it's, I mean, it's very different world to the world we know today. And even in later centuries, it's, it's still very much a life dominated by the church. I want to hear a little bit more about Elizabeth's early life, because I don't think we hear too much about that. And perhaps that's because there's not too much known. I'm not sure. Hopefully you'll let us know now. So you've mentioned she was the daughter, of course, of um, Edward IV. So presumably she received quite a good education. Do we know very much about that? So much about Elizabeth of York's life is quite enigmatic. And I mean, it's such a shame. And it's a symptom of being a woman in the period that she was born into, in that actually She's the eldest child of Edward and Elizabeth. And because she's a girl, you know, celebrations are somewhat muted. Um, She's obviously healthy. She's the eldest child. And girls had value on the marriage market, but she's got no chance of the throne. She's not her father's heir, particularly as she was then followed by girl after girl after girl. So we don't know that much about her early life. She's quite enigmatic. We know that she spent a lot of time at Sheen Palace, which would later become Richmond in Henry VII's reign. She spent time with her sisters We know that she could read and write. There are a few books that we know belong to her, which they have her signature in and writing by her. In that sense, that's actually quite unusual for a woman of the period. Um, Not everyone by any means could read or write, particularly writing. Reading tended to be more common for upper-class women, but many couldn't write and would use a scribe. So even in this period, you get women who can't even sign their names. We know that English was her first language, of course, she could definitely understand French to some level, and she may well have had extra instruction during her childhood due to her childhood betrothal. She did need an interpreter later in life to speak to a French ambassador. So whether, whether she was fluent, it seems unlikely. Um, she definitely couldn't speak Latin. She admitted that herself later in life. But she had clearly had 
a reasonable education for an upper class girl of her time. Now, you mentioned uh, Sheen Palace. I always love to hear about the, the castles and the great houses where all these stories played out. So what are some of the other main residences where her family spent time? So she was born at Westminster, which was the great medieval palace. Huge residence. Not much of it survives anymore. Unfortunately, it burnt down early in Elizabeth's son's reign. So very little of it survives. There's Westminster Hall with its amazing oak, medieval oak roof. And then there's just the jewel tower, really, which is just a small tower that was used to store important goods. Pretty much everything else has been swept away. So the Palace of Westminster, where the British Parliament is today, that's a 19th century building. But Westminster was a place that Elizabeth knew well both in the palace and in the surroundings. Another palace that's really associated with her family and where she spent a lot of time is Eltham Palace, which is in southeast London, very close to Greenwich, and it was later superseded by Greenwich in importance. Eltham's problem was it wasn't on the river, so it was more difficult to get to. But Edward IV, Elizabeth's father, loved Eltham. He spent huge sums of money turning it into a really lavish palace. And you can still see the hall that he built there today. It's got a fabulous oak roof. It's got Yorkist motifs, massively lavish scale, and one where the family spent a lot of time. Elizabeth's youngest sister, Bridget, was born there, for example. And it's where Edward kept his library that was very important to him. And it had all the mod cons. I mean, it was probably in Edward's reign that Eltham got a rudimentary flushing toilet um, that was discovered in excavations it most likely dates to his reign and it was it sort of involves a series of traps that flush water so it's quite rudimentary but for the time you know the height of luxury absolutely I, I have visited Eltham's beautiful great hall and it's magnificent but it's such an interesting contrast with the rest of the building isn't it <laughs> it is so Eltham Palace was I mean it was I mean it was derelict by the end of Elizabeth I's reign, by the end of the 16th century, pretty much. Occasionally, occasional attempts were made to do some repairs so that it could be occupied, but it was, you know, it was never going to be a favourite palace again. It was, you know, it was falling down. And by the early 20th century, it was in a real state. The hall was ruined and it was bought by some, some millionaires who decided to art deco it up. So joined on to the, the medieval hall, Edward's medieval hall is an art deco palace, which is quite a contrast. I mean, I have to say, I'd like to live there. <laughs> but mainly for the hall, to be honest, and the ruins in the garden. You can see the ruins of the Queen's apartments and the King's apartments and um, Henry VIII's sewer system is there as well. Yes, it's a wonderful location. Now, on the 9th of April, 1483, Elizabeth's father, King Edward IV, dies quite unexpectedly. So tell us about this particular chapter in Elizabeth's life. So this is the date that Elizabeth's life changed absolutely dramatically. The course of it completely altered. So it was very unexpected. Nobody thought Edward was going to die. There were no signs of it. He was 40, 41, young, a young man, very overweight by this stage, um, liked good living, liked good food. Um, but there was no indication that he was unwell at all until sort of his final illness. So a huge shock to everyone. And of course, his children were young. I mean, Elizabeth was um, the eldest. She's 17. His heir is 12 years old, her brother Edward. So an enormous shock to the family and absolutely life-changing because until that point, Elizabeth's future lay in marriage, probably a diplomatic marriage abroad. She'd spent a long time in her childhood betrothed to the Dauphin of France. Her aunt, for example, Margaret of York had married the Duke of Burgundy and Elizabeth could expect a marriage similar to that probably, but suddenly everything changed. And 
it happened quickly. I mean, I'm sure everyone is familiar with what happens after Edward IV's death. So obviously his son, Edward V, is declared king and Elizabeth Woodville and her family, the Woodvilles, who are very unpopular, start to bring the king to London so that he can be crowned. On the way, he is waylaid by his paternal uncle, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, who takes custody of the king and arrests the Woodville relatives who are with Edward V. On hearing what's happened, Elizabeth the Woodville, sorry, Elizabeth Woodville gathered up her daughters and her younger son, Richard, and took them to the sanctuary at Westminster. And this is actually the second time that Elizabeth of York has been in sanctuary at Westminster. And sanctuary is where you go to a religious site and you effectively, you, know, you claim, well, you claim sanctuary. You say, you know, I, it's too dangerous for me to be outside. In here, you can live, you can't be molested, you can't be, you know, taken out of the sanctuary. But it's a very difficult circumstances because, of course, you've still got to feed yourself. And how do you feed yourself if all your goods and all your money are not in the sanctuary? And, you know, you can't go make money. You have to rely on charity to a large extent. And we know that Elizabeth Woodville and her daughters and her younger son were at different stages relying on charity, being fed by sympathetic people, um, the abbot. Westminster was providing them with goods. So it's a really difficult circumstances and it's very cramped because Elizabeth Woodville's there, all her daughters, her younger son, her adult son by her first marriage, the Marquis of Dorset, they're all squeezed into this sanctuary. And it must have been bizarre for Elizabeth. She probably didn't really remember during her father's brief deposition from the throne when they'd been in sanctuary before. So suddenly she's gone from being princess in a palace, sister of the king, to being, you know, in a really precarious position. And of course, Richard then discovers or fabricates, whichever way you want to look at it, evidence that Elizabeth Woodville's marriage shared with the force wasn't valid. Um, I'm not going to go into <laughs> that. <laughs> um, but... Edward V, his sisters, his brother, they're all declared illegitimate. They're no longer the legitimate heirs to the throne. And of course, the princes disappear. Um, the younger, yes. rich, younger son, Richard, is removed from Westminster Sanctuary, surrendered by his mother when troops surround the sanctuary, and the princes disappear. So we've got Elizabeth Woodville and all her daughters in the sanctuary. They're the nieces of the new king, Richard III, but they are illegitimate. An incredible set of events, really, in such a short time. Um, so... When So they're in sanctuary. When do negotiations for Elizabeth's marriage to Henry Tudor begin? Henry Tudor is a name that cropped up throughout Elizabeth of York's life. And he's a really interesting figure because he was so obscure. And obviously, I mean, now everyone knows who he is and hugely important, but at the time, very, very obscure. He is the son of the Lancastrian king, Henry VI's half-brother. Edmund Tudor by Margaret Beaufort, who is a member of the Lancastrian royal family herself, but very, very distantly related. After the Battle of Tewkesbury in 1471, where Edward IV decisively defeats the Lancastrians, Margaret Beaufort is the hereditary heir to the Lancastrian dynasty, as long as you accept that her family are legitimate, which is kind of an, another set of problems. But Margaret Beaufort, of course, as a woman, is she's never going to claim the throne. Everyone just completely overlooks her because you know, in this period, a woman is never going to be queen in her own right. So everyone looks to Henry and he spends most of his life, his early life in exile in Brittany mainly. But his name keeps cropping up because his mother works very hard on Edward IV. She marries um, Lord Stanley, who's a close friend and important supporter of Edward IV. And towards the end of Edward's reign, it looks as though she'd almost clinched and almost managed to get Henry back to England. There's a draft pardon 
that exists in the royal records from Edward IV trying to pardon Henry VII. And there are just hints that it might have been to marry him to Elizabeth of York or perhaps one of his younger daughters to bring him into the Yorkist fold, if you like. So that's when their name is first mentioned. But it's during Elizabeth's time at Sanctuary that this really becomes important because Margaret Beaufort and Elizabeth Woodville share a physician. They share the same doctor and they're able to pass messages to and throw through this doctor in the sanctuary. And they basically agree that if Henry can come and claim the throne, Elizabeth Woodville will throw her Yorkist support behind him in return for him marrying her daughter. So this is the moment, quite soon after Richard comes to the throne, where the two mothers basically agree that they'll marry. And Henry, Henry Tudor swears that he will marry Elizabeth of York. And he does attempt to invade England. Unfortunately, I mean, it doesn't work, unfortunately, from his point of view. But, you know, this is the point where their names are really securely linked. And of course, speaking about marriage, anyone who's sort of done a little bit of reading about this period probably has come across the rumour that Richard III himself wanted to marry Elizabeth, his niece. Is there any truth to this rumour? It's a really difficult one. Um, it makes a lot of sense. Elizabeth of York was recognised by most people as the hereditary heir to the throne. You know, I mean, if you look through the royal family tree, as long as you think she's legitimate, and to be honest, most people did, if you look through the family tree, she's she's top. You know, there is nobody with a better hereditary claim to the throne from the medieval throne than Elizabeth of York. So whoever marries Elizabeth of York has a really, really strong chance of becoming king. And certainly her children have a really strong chance of becoming king. And, you know, Richard knows this. It makes perfect sense to marry her because if he's the husband of Elizabeth of York, then nobody else is. And then their children have an undoubtedly the best claim to the throne. It would silence the critics about the legitimacy of his reign. Of course, the big, big problem and the massive stumbling block to that is that he's her uncle. Um, it's not necessarily that much of an issue. Um, you know, the Pope would dispense marriages between close relatives quite frequently. And the Habsburgs in later centuries were, were busily marrying their nieces quite regularly. You know, it, it was uncle-niece marriages are not at all unheard of. And in fact, I mean, Elizabeth's contemporary Ferdinand of Aragon, who's the father of Catherine of Aragon, he later married his own great-niece, the granddaughter of his half-sister. So, you know, it, it happened that doesn't mean it was particularly popular. And certainly the idea that Richard would marry his niece um, was not a popular one. So it is, it's difficult to get to the truth of it. Um, certainly Elizabeth came out of sanctuary. Her mother agreed to release her daughters in return for Richard promising that he wouldn't harm them and he wouldn't kill them, basically. Um, she came to court. She appeared at court wearing the same dress as Richard's wife, which was pretty telling. Richard's wife then dies early in 1485. So there are, there are rumours that he's going to marry Elizabeth to the extent that Richard actually goes and makes the public denial, you know, says he's never, he goes to the Hall of the Knights at St. John says, you know, he's never going to marry her. So, I mean, I, I think there probably is some level of truth to it because it makes sense, you know, and the fact he had to make this denial. The interesting thing is that there's possibly a letter from Elizabeth saying that she, she agrees to, <laughs> to this marriage. Early 17th century history by George Buck refers to a letter by Elizabeth where she's, you know, writing to the Duke of Norfolk, asking him to further the marriage because he, she wants to be Richard's wife and she wants to be his queen. And that's really interesting. Unfortunately, we don't have the original. We don't know if it's genuine. It might not be. But it's a, it's a glimpse, if it is true, into, you know, Elizabeth's feelings 
feelings and her views and it just suggests she's a bit more of a political animal than we perhaps think of her yeah that's really interesting and it's probably quite telling if if it is um, genuine of Richard's character too, um, you know, if he yes. was this kind of awful monster child killing person, you know, it's doubtful that she'd really want to marry him, I suppose. So that's really interesting. Uh, we're going to fast forward a little bit to the 18th of January, 1486. So we've got Henry now on the throne and Elizabeth has married Henry VII. So why was this such a significant match? And what do we know of the actual wedding ceremony? It's really, really important to Henry VII that he marries Elizabeth of York. And there are suggestions that he knew this and wasn't particularly keen on it. So Henry VII claimed the throne through three titles, victory and battle. That was his favourite claim, the fact that he defeated Richard III and effectively conquered England. His second claim was hereditary, you know, that he's the hereditary heir to the throne. And I think everybody knew that one was a bit dicey, to be honest, because actually the House of Lancaster definitely descended from a younger son of Edward III than the House of York. So there were many people who had a better hereditary claim than Henry. And his third title was through marriage, through marrying Elizabeth of York, probably the Yorkist heiress, woman with the best claim to the throne, probably. He has these three titles and he, at least one source suggests that, you know, he was actually quite wary of claiming through Elizabeth. And I think that's likely because, you know, actually, if you claim through marriage, there's always a danger that you're not really the king. You don't have full authority. A reigning queen has a level of authority. So, you know, for example, when the couple's granddaughter, Mary Tudor, married, is queen and then marries Philip of Spain, Philip appears on the coins and, you know, documents refer to the reign of Philip and Mary. But she's still there. You know, she, he's, she, he's not an independent monarch. And that would be the same for Henry Tudor to a large extent. So I think this is the reason why the marriage ceremony is quite delayed because, you know, he didn't, he didn't rush from Bosworth Field to marry Elizabeth of York. I mean, he fetches her down. She's at Sheriff Hutton with her cousin, the Earl of Warwick, who's another Yorkist claimant. So he fetches her back to London and, and sort of takes custody of her, but he delays the marriage. And it's because he doesn't have to marry her straight away. And it's showing everyone that he's the king and she's very much the consort. It does make sense, yeah, that he doesn't want to emphasise that his, any of his power comes from Elizabeth, of course. And, of course, there's another delay. She marries him in January 1486, but she's not crowned until the following November, so November 1487. So why do you think there was this extended delay between marriage ceremony and coronation? See, this is, again, really strange. And I think we can read something in it about Henry's political relationship with his wife, not necessarily personal, in that she is a political rival to him, you know, as I've just said. So I think most likely the delay is due to the fact that he again wants to establish and display himself as the independent king of England. Because it is really interesting because most kings preferred their queen to be crowned before they gave birth to an heir. And, it, you know, it's, it's not a hard and fast rule, but certainly from Anglo-Saxon times onwards, it was seen as better if an heir was born to a consecrated mother, um, just made them a little bit more kingly, a little bit more mystique. So you would expect, I mean, firstly, you would expect Henry to marry Elizabeth of York immediately after becoming king and then share their coronation. That's what Henry VIII does with Catherine of Aragon. They get married quickly and then they just have a joint coronation. He doesn't do that because he doesn't want to share with Elizabeth. And I think the delay again is really saying, you're the consort, you're not the queen. And I don't think it necessarily says anything about their personal relationship, but it very much shows that he wants her 
to know her political place and she is subordinate. Yeah, and I want to talk to you a little bit more about their actual relationship, their personal relationship. Obviously, the marriage was arranged. It was, you know, a matter of politics and power. But I have read accounts that says that they were quite happy together. So in your research, have you found that their relationship was quite a happy and loving one as far as we know? As far as we know. I mean, again, it's she's very enigmatic and we never really get inside Elizabeth's head in the sources, which is such a shame. But the evidence, I mean, the evidence that I've read doesn't suggest there's any estrangement. I mean, they have they have seven children, which in itself, you know, suggests they're spending a fair bit of time together in their marriage. In the early years of their marriage, you know, it's pretty much a child every year or so. Um, you know, Henry VIII, for example, is the birth of Henry VIII, their second son, was followed by his sister Elizabeth, who died young, um, pretty much a bang on a year after his birth. So, you know, they're they're clearly having a a sexual relationship pretty regularly. They're together a lot. You know, what we know of them seems because Henry VII doesn't have any named mistresses that we know of. He doesn't have any illegitimate children. There were rumours in Henry VIII's reign that um, the Duke of Suffolk was his illegitimate son, but that was based on the similarity between Suffolk and Henry VIII. They physically looked very similar. But of course, Henry VIII looked like Elizabeth of York's side of the family. So I think we can discount that. So they, I mean, as far as we can tell, they're very close. And there is just one one real hint of their relationship while they're both alive, which I think, again, speaks volumes of the fact that it was probably quite a close and content relationship. And that's when their eldest son, Arthur, dies in 1502. When news was brought to Henry that Arthur had died very, very suddenly away at Ludlow, he called for the queen saying that he wanted to share his sorrow with her. And, you know, he was distraught. Arthur was the symbol of his dynasty. You know, he was he was named Prince Arthur to be, you know, the heir to King Arthur, if you like, you know, this British dynasty. Um, so he was distraught. And Elizabeth seems to have tried to comfort him. So, you know, she said, we're both young, we can have more sons. And, you know, we, we already have a son. And he's a really, you know, really great son, really fine, healthy boy. And, you know, she says to Henry, your mother didn't have any other children except for you. And, you know, look, you're here and doing wonderful things. So it's okay. You know, it's, it's sad, but it's okay. We'll be okay. And that seems to comfort Henry. And then Elizabeth went away to her own rooms and just burst into tears and just, you know, gave way to grief. And when Henry heard that she was grieving and crying and sad, he then went to her to comfort her. And again, you know, saying, you know, we've, we've got a son. It's okay. You know, this is all right. We'll be okay. So I think, I think that's, I mean, it's the only real example until Elizabeth's death. It's the only real example that we have of their relationship. But it, I mean, that suggests a strong level of closeness that I think, you know, we get hints at in the sources. So I would say at the very least, they seem to have been mutually supportive albeit that they do have this political issue hanging over their heads that, you know, Henry is very aware that Elizabeth has a better claim to the throne than he does. Very moving episode, that one, definitely. Now, you've mentioned that they had seven children, some of them which died in infancy, others lived on. What was Elizabeth like as a mother? Do we know any information about that? I mean, as a royal woman, she was a distant mother. Firstly, I mean, of course, um, her children were handed over to a wet nurse at birth. They would be carefully selected. And Elizabeth probably played a role in selecting the wet nurses. They they tended to come, her children, they came from the local area, for example, um, her daughter Elizabeth, again, who I I, meant, I feature in my lives of Tudor women, which is why I keep bringing this, this baby up that died as an infant. But 
her wet nurse came from very close to Richmond Palace where the baby was born and you know so that it's likely Elizabeth made inquiries there'd be a whole staff of nursery attendants and the children didn't live with Elizabeth and Henry the court was large it was disease ridden it moved around a lot and it was usual for children to live away from their parents so Arthur had his own establishment as the heir and then the younger children lived together with their own individual staffs often at Elton Palace that's where most most time was spent by her younger children. So we know Elizabeth visited her children. They visited quite regularly. We know from particularly Henry's accounts that he sent presents to the children, clothing, you know, they're they're very intimately involved in what's going on, but they're certainly not, she's not, you know, she's not doing the day-to-day care for her children. As you were speaking, I was picturing that illumination that uh, that's I think done following is following her death where Henry's yeah. mm. as in Henry VIII but a young Henry VIII is pictured you know bawling over a bed after his mother's death so I, I suppose that is also evidence perhaps that they had a warm relationship even though it may have been a distant one yeah absolutely I mean it's that's a heartbreaking image I mean it's yeah. the earliest earliest depiction of Henry VIII and it's you know you can't see his face because he's lying as you say crying on the bed because his mother has just died yeah I mean it, being a distant mother doesn't mean that you're not close to your children um I mean, Henry VII and his mother, Margaret, both are a real team. And actually, she was forced to be absent from almost all of his childhood. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, she's clearly, she clearly has a loving relationship with her children. They wouldn't expect to be raised by her. And what about Elizabeth's relationship with her mother-in-law? This is another one that we hear lots of differing accounts and interesting things. What was their relationship like? Margaret Beaufort. Margaret Beaufort <laughs> is a character. Fabulous figure very very driven she gave birth to the future henry the seventh when she was a child herself he was a posthumous child so she'd been widowed she was a force to be reckoned with and very much so when henry became king so she began signing her name as margaret r which could mean margaret richmond because she was countess of richmond but it looks very much like she's sort of implying that she's the queen because obviously (laughs) the queen would sign as elizabeth r the king would sign as henry r she also is always known as my lady, the king's mother. And more importantly, she's always there. <laughs> Whenever you have a record of any court occasion, Margaret's there. You have Henry, you have Elizabeth, and right next to Elizabeth, there's Margaret everywhere. Elizabeth must have found it a little bit stifling. Margaret definitely pushes out Elizabeth's own mother, Elizabeth Woodville, who is the Dowager Queen. So, you know, she's just sort of pushed away to the margins, doesn't seem to have been very happy about that. And of course, Elizabeth of York was very, very close to her family and her mother. So she probably did resent that. Margaret often wears the same clothes as Elizabeth of York. Um, She's very, very pushy and very involved in court ceremonial. So, I mean, she must have resented it to some level, I think, although we don't have the evidence. But equally, I don't think we can see it as, you know, a hostile relationship at all. Certainly, she's got a pushy mother-in-law, but she's also got a mother-in-law who dearly, dearly loves her family. So, you know, Margaret Beaufort very carefully copied out the dates of birth of her grandchildren into her prayer book. She doted on the grandchildren. She doted on her son. You know, so equally, the two women have got quite a lot in common. When there was talk of sending the eldest daughter, Margaret, to Scotland too early, both Margaret Beaufort and Elizabeth of York teamed up to persuade Henry that she was much too young to go and they needed he needed to wait. So we can see them working together. Elizabeth called her eldest daughter Margaret. She probably didn't have any choice in that. She had to wait till her second daughter to be named after her. But Henry's eldest son wasn't called Henry. It was Arthur. So, you know, she, she may not have minded too much. I think what we can see of the relationship is they're friendly enough. I suspect that sometimes Elizabeth just sort of... Oh, Margaret's here but 
ultimately, I mean, it's not a hostile relationship. You talked about that really tragic episode where, of course, Prince Arthur dies at Ludlow Castle, leaving Catherine of Aragon uh, a widow as well. And so it's obvious that the couple wanted more children, even though, you know, Elizabeth comforted Henry with those words of we've got a son. You know, they obviously still wanted more. And in August 1502, it's a really interesting episode because a pregnant Elizabeth goes on progress, doesn't she, to Wales. Why do you think she decided to make this journey at this particular time? And do we know much of the places that she visited and the people that she stayed with? Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's such an interesting journey. And it, again, it we know we only know about it because her accounts survived for that year. That's the only reason that it it survives at all. So it does make you wonder what we might be missing from earlier in her life. We know her itinerary. I mean, she, you know, she set out to Woodstock. She spent some time in Oxfordshire. She then moves through the Forest of Dean and sort of heads west. She spent a lot of time at Raglan Castle, which is where Henry actually grew up for a large portion of his childhood. But it was um, occupied by one of her cousins at that stage. So, she, you know, she's gone to visit a cousin effectively. It's a really interesting journey to make, firstly, because she's pregnant. I mean, she was probably in the relatively early stages of pregnancy. She gives birth in February the following year, but the baby was definitely premature by at least a month. So she's fairly early in her pregnancy. So may not have been totally sure, but you would think that you would probably want to stay close to London. But of course, she doesn't. It's tricky. I mean, she visits a lot of religious sites on the journey and you know she makes offerings at churches and other holy sites pays people to make offerings on her behalf i mean it's tempting to see it as a bit of a pilgrimage her pregnancy was probably risky when she gave birth to her previous child edmund in 1499 there were concerns over her life people thought that she might die during the birth and there's then a gap with no children the fact that she then says when Arthur dies to Henry, you know, we can have another child and it almost immediately falls pregnant. I, I think suggests that they'd stopped trying to have children after Edmund, probably for her health, I would think. So, you know, they're probably not sleeping together or if they are, they're being very, very careful. So I would suggest that there were concerns about her health with a further pregnancy, maybe with, a birth, with the birth itself, um, which may be why she wants to go on a bit of a religious pilgrimage, but it's clearly not solely a religious pilgrimage because she isn't actually you know her focus isn't the religious site she's also going to visit family I mean I know there's been a suggestion that it may be that she's going to try and find out information about what happened to her brothers the princes in the tower because there were reports that there'd been a confession about what had happened to them recently and I mean again it's it's speculation but it's possible of course tragically Elizabeth as you mentioned earlier on does die very young as well Tell us about the death and burial of the first Tudor queen consort. So, yeah, Elizabeth, I mean, Elizabeth died on her 37th birthday in 1503, which, I mean, is really tragic, very, very young. And she dies in childbirth. Her last birth seems to have gone horribly wrong, really. About a week before she actually gave birth, she moved from Richmond Palace to the Tower of London just to stay. And it wasn't where she was intending to have her confinement. So she wasn't intending to give birth at the Tower. And Queen's in that period, normally retired to their chamber a month before the expected birth. And Elizabeth had always followed that protocol. So you would assume that she was planning to do that. So that suggests very strongly that the baby was more than a month premature. The fact that she wasn't even at Richmond where she was planning to give birth. There are other hints in the sources that the baby was very early. You know, there are records of the baby coming suddenly while she was with the king at the tower. Um, there are expenses where 
one of her servants was sent to fetch her doctor from Kent very hurriedly when she when she went into labor. So she gave birth to a premature baby in the tower in February 1503. And, you know, within within a few days, just over a week, she was dead. The baby died not long after her. So she, I mean, clearly complications of childbirth, she probably incurred an infection. And of course, a premature baby was also unlikely to survive in the period. So it, it's really, really tragic because it looks very much like they decided to stop at six children um, with Edmund's birth and they won't, and then they weren't going to have another child. But then with Arthur, they, they, they take a punt, they try and have another prince and it all just goes tragically wrong. Um, they would have been better off sticking with hindsight. But of course, Elizabeth is the first Tudor queen to die, as she said, and she's given an incredibly grand funeral. Henry seems to have been genuinely deeply upset by the death. I mean, it must have been a shock as well. But he went off and secluded himself away, wouldn't see people. But he paid for a really lavish funeral for her. And, you know, I mean, he's notoriously quite tight-fisted. So again, I think this suggests Partly, you know, it glorifies his dynasty, but also it suggests affection for her. Um, He spent £2,000, almost £2,000 on her funeral, which is an enormous sum of money. Her body was lay in state for a time, and then it was taken ceremonially to Westminster Abbey, a huge train of people accompanying her. You know, you've got lords, you've got abbots, you've got ladies. Her body was carried in a hearse with with an effigy, which actually still survives, over the top. And she's then buried in Westminster Abbey and, of course, later joined by Henry himself. Yeah, so that's quite a magnificent tomb that you can still see there today. Quite stunning, actually. What an incredible story about the first Tudor Queen Consort. That's amazing. I really enjoyed that. Now, Elizabeth, at the end of our episodes for this particular series, All Things Tudor Queens and Consorts, rather than just a Tudor takeaway, I'm asking guests for a takeaway related to Tudor Queens. So something for our listeners to go and listen to or watch or explore after the episode that might just deepen their understanding of queenship or queens in general. So do you have a Tudor takeaway for us? I do. So I'm actually going to take us back to Westminster Abbey and um, Elizabeth York's funeral, because of course she's buried there. But if you go to Westminster Abbey, if you're lucky enough to go there, or if you look on their website, look for the information on the effigies in their museum so you can go and view them in the museum i mentioned elizabeth of york's effigy so you can see her wooden effigy that was carried in her funeral procession and it's it's absolutely fabulous because it's you know it it very much she's got no hair because of course you know it, it would have been dressed she would have had a wig um but you can see her face and i think much much more clearly than in the portraits you can see her as a real woman there are other many many other effigies so don't just stop at elizabeth Um, Henry VII is there, very, very lifelike wooden effigy. I mean, you feel like he could just walk off and start talking. I mean, it's so lifelike. But there's also, there's the couple's granddaughter, Elizabeth I. Her effigy is there. And in fact, also the corset that the effigy was wearing, the underwear survives. And in fact, is most likely a corset that was worn by Elizabeth in her life. It was certainly made to her size. It would have fitted her. So that's just fabulous. But as well as them, there are so many other royal and noble effigies. I mean, they go all the way back for queenship. They go all the way back to, we have Catherine of Valois, who was Henry V's wife and actually um, Henry Tudor's grandmother through his father, Edmund Tudor. You also have Anne of Bohemia, who was the first wife of Richard II, who died right at the end of the 14th century. And her effigy is there too. So it's well worth just exploring because it's so, so rare in this period that you can actually kind of see these figures in 3D. You can see things that are really directly associated with them, not just sort of bricks and mortar of palaces, but actually 
you know, these are the things that were carried in their funerals. You know, they were meant to be likenesses and to look like them. They give you a real sense of what the person was like. So they're well worth a look and you can find them on the Westminster Abbey website and also, of course, in the museum itself. Definitely. They're fantastic. And I'm just thinking of Henry Tudor's effigy. He's quite, his face is quite kind of drawn, isn't it? It's quite a, um, it is. a shock when you see it. You think, wow, he yeah. must have been quite ill at, at the end, I think. Very, 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 very thin. Um, yeah, I mean, I think he was worn out, really. I mean, it's Absolutely. hugely realistic. You can imagine him as, as a real man and he looks old for his age and tired. Yes. And you can sort of see why the nobility were, were kind of scared of him as well. Yes. Actually, you know, he feel, he, he's a severe man. You know, yeah. he's not someone you necessarily would want to mess with. Exactly. No, that's a wonderful takeaway. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your expertise and for talking tutors with us. It's been absolutely wonderful. Thank you very much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners. So if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family. And don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Mm-hmm.